Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, author and sentient meat golem imprisoned on a rock, hurtling through the empty vastness of space. I like to write, not all the time, but increasingly so. And the mission of this podcast is twofold. One, to help you enjoy writing more. Two, to write better when you do. And if we're being completely candid, there's probably a three in there to mildly raise my profile as Tim Clare, author, by sort of implying I know what I'm talking about and shilling my books at the end of each episode. But that's okay. you don't mind that because of my disarming vulnerability and fondness for diarrhoea jokes. Today, I'm going to take a look at another first page sent in by you, the listener. I mean, not you personally, obviously, although possibly specifically you, if your name is Jack, well, the Jack who sent in the extract. You're being called Jack doesn't make you the author of this piece. Technically, it's a, it's a necessary condition, but insufficient. If, having listened to today's episode, you decide you'd like to submit some of your own writing, I'll explain at the end how to do that. But workshopping is a team sport, so I'm going to read the piece out in just a moment. But if you'd like to cast your balls across it beforehand, uh, eyeballs, eyes, then you can peek in the show notes on SoundCloud or indeed pop over to my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. This is season two, episode eight. I'm not really sure why I introduced the season system, I suppose, to imply the illusion of order and purpose when I stopped posting for a year because I couldn't stop eating yoghurt and crying. Anyway, feel free to disagree with my uh, quote-unquote takes on this piece. The whole purpose of my going through writer's work is to get you thinking about editing and redrafting. It's not in any way an evaluation of their worth as a writer or as a person. We're just practising taking stuff you wrote and making it better. So if you look at the first draft of something you wrote, if you look at one page of the first draft of something you wrote and you can see no mistakes, then guess what? You done fucked up, my friend. You're in trouble because you won't have written history's first perfect novel. You just lack discernment, which can be fixed. It can be fixed. That's not the end of the world. But by that same logic, if you look at your writing and you notice things you're unhappy with, you are in fine health as a writer. That's good. I'm not talking about, oh, this is worthless, I'm an awful person type of reactions. That's not meaningful, constructive criticism that gives you actionable things you can fix. It's just being cruel to yourself. Whole paragraphs, whole scenes won't work sometimes. That's fine. It doesn't make you stupid or a bad writer. If you notice it and you commit to work on fixing it, you have two key qualities of a good writer. Self-awareness and a commitment to excellence. So come with me, dear one. Unsheathe your wetted knife and venture with me into the dense undergrowth of a new first page, that we might slash a path through which a story may someday stride. This extract is called The Dawn Trials and it was submitted by Jack. Thanks very much, Jack. Bundled branches and stacked logs loomed through the morning fog as Jim and I reached the cliff top. A hungry fear dropped and hung in my stomach like a noose. I'd prayed to a god I barely believed in all night, hoping that Jim wouldn't understand what was happening. The poor boy. The decisions I made in the days after I watched Ma die have stalked me ever since. We'd left at sunrise, wrapped up against the chill with the rest of the freshwater folk. Dark figures emerged from the fog with muffled whispers. I remembered when I was barely Jim's age, on top of the cliff with everyone, holding on to Father's hand and hiding behind him. But I still heard the last words, the begging, the trapdoor thud and crunch as bone snapped, then the stench of shit that followed. God's cruel joke. Where's Ma, Anna? Jim clutched onto my skirts and looked up at me. I placed my hand on his shoulder, 
crouched down and lied. She's gone away for a while. She... Why isn't she here? I don't want to watch. You don't have to watch, lad. I don't want you to. I showed him how to scrunch up his eyes and put his fingers in his ears. He sucked his thumb, his mouth somehow already dirty. I wanted to pick him up and run, but I knew we had to be there. To flee would have been to admit our own guilt. Okay, and here are my thoughts. Bundled branches and stacked logs loomed through the morning fog as Jim and I reached the clifftop. This is not a dreadful sentence. You've got some physical specific things here. Bundled branches, stacked logs, morning fog. You put us in a narrative present. You give us two characters, the narrator and Jim, and you give us a location. All those things definitely go in the plus column, so well done. But there's just something off about this whole sentence. One, what do you mean by bundled branches? Do you mean bundles of sticks? Why give us bundled branches and... Stacked logs. And if that bundles of sticks and branches sounds like I'm, I'm splitting hairs, I am a little bit, but but I, I think sticks are a different thing to branches. Branches haven't been stripped. Sticks have. Um, but it just seems weird to gesture towards two different gauges of cut tree in the same sentence. And in your first sentence, as if both are significant. This is how you're opening your story. This is the first thing we know about the world. Bundled branches and stacked logs. Unless, I'm just realising now, unless that is a very oblique reference to fascism which i believe the symbol of of the uh, fascism is a bundle of branches i'm just getting that now that may be super if that was intentional it may be way 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 too inside baseball for anyone to really get um or maybe not but uh, i didn't get it until now um on my kind of like 10th pass loomed is an odd verb choice by the way it suggests to me at least towered over threateningly that's what loomed means to me so are these really tall bundles of branches and huge eerie log piles are they popping out of the fog as jim and the narrator approach the cliff or are they visible in fog somewhere below i just can't picture bundled branches looming they sound like something out of a regional craft fair it's like writing Welsh love spoons and faux suede cushion covers leered through the mist as Nigel and I reached the church hall. I'd pick one out of those two things. And actually, now I reread it, the problem is you don't say stacks of logs, you say stacked logs, which picks out the individual logs and uses stacks as an adjective. Stacks of logs make stacks the subject of the clause. It's a, it's a noun there. And of logs is the adjectival phrase mod- modifying it. So stacks can loom. Sure, individual logs, even if they are stacked, can't. And if that sounds stupidly nitpicky to the point of missing uh, the whole context of the sentence, like I'm combing through your work uh, like a lawyer trying to catch you out. I, I am. First of all, Jack, that's a, that's a fair criticism of what I'm saying. Um, some readers don't notice this stuff. Most can't pinpoint exactly what's shonky with a sentence, just like most drivers couldn't build a car and they might not be able to identify what elements make one car a a pleasure to drive and and one car feel a bit off and most of us for a variety of reasons to extend the driving metaphor will just drive what's in front of us what we can get and if the clutch is unresponsive and the steering turns to butter at low speeds we we probably put up with that because well we might not realize we can do any better or it might just be a bit of a hassle and 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 the car gets us from a to b right so And the reason I say that is because obviously uh, readers are not always hugely discerning about these things and you don't always have to cater to them. And there are a bunch of bestsellers that don't 
particularly worry about whether the sentences are, are finely crafted. You don't have to. But going into this level of detail is all about doing justice to your story and treating the reader like an honoured guest. This opening sentence is confusing and muddled to me. It carries a big burden. It's our first glimpse of your fictional world. And so flaws are magnified. We don't have context that allows us to read round inadequacies in the sentence. I'd suggest you're trying to do too much in one bite here. Maybe have the narrator and Jim walking through the woods, tall piles of stark black logs looming out of the fog, silhouetted against the morning sun. Why are the log piles significant? What do they tell us about this world? And why have you chosen it as the first thing you mention? Uh, I mean, yeah, it might be the, it might be the fascist thing, right? That, that might be why you're saying it. It's still... That is still that's still tricky. There's going to be listeners if you're listening to this now and you're like, oh, I got that. That was meant to suggest this is a fascist dystopia. Well done. You can have a smarty and go to the top of the class. I didn't. And I think most readers won't pick up on that. If there's another detail that would better ground us, where are we? What kind of world tech level? Maybe pick that instead. I do like the sentences ending on clifftop. That's a strong appropriate noun. You know, they get to the cliff edge. And the sentence stops, you know, the, the form of the sentence mirrors the word. That's great. I, I went back and forth on whether you could cut it down to just cliff, but I guess cliff top is clearer. Cliff could mean they arrived at the base, at the foot of the cliff, so probably keep it as cliff top. A hungry fear dropped and hung in my stomach like a noose. A hungry fear dropped and hung in my stomach is just... Wow, that is really good writing. Listen to the sound of it, the assonance of the repeated uh sound. Um, beware, I've got a bit of a cold this morning, so it's adding an extra kind of like gravelly ASMR roll to my voice. So um, my apologies if any of you uh, become slightly aroused. But a hungry fear dropped and hung in my stomach. Hungry, hung, stomach. Uh, I, don't, I don't sound sexy, I just sound ill. And the cadence of dropped and hung, you know, hungry, hung, stomach. There's you go And then you go dropped and hung, and it's like these two terminal stresses on single-syllable verbs, each mirroring the violence they described. A hungry fear dropped and hung in my stomach. That's excellent stuff. Very impressive. But are you, say, clearing your throat? What about the simile, Tim? Because that wasn't the whole sentence, was it? It ends like a noose. No, that is unequivocally a bad simile. Cut it. And I shall brook no dissent on this because this scene is about a hanging, right? And you've already implied the noose with your verb choices, dropped and hung. And then it's like, it's like you don't quite trust the reader to make the connection. And by the way, it doesn't matter if they don't. That's not necessary for this image to work. When you pull from adjacent lexical fields, the reader doesn't have to think, oh, like a hangman's noose. You're just evoking a mood. It's subliminal. It's a really powerful technique, actually, employing language associated with a particular thing without actually naming the thing. Imagine, for example, describing a character eating a steak dinner while using verbs, nouns and adjectives drawn from vivisection or pornography. Imagine the various effects that would have on the scene. And you can do that here, but by stepping in and going like a noose, it, it's like you're leaning in and, and, and digging us in the ribs with your elbow going, <laughs> do you get it? Do you get it? It's it's like writing freezing sleet slashed through his cloak as he rode, cutting him to the very bone like an assassin's blade. He felt for the assassin's blade at his side. He would need it later for the assassination. He spurred his horse onward down the narrow trail. 
snow rushing at his face like an assassin on horseback. Let the reader finish the riddle themselves. Don't give them the answer. It's far more powerful if you set up two electrodes and let the spark between them happen in the reader's head. I'd prayed to a god I barely believed in all night, hoping that Jim wouldn't understand what was happening. So three sentences in and you're wheeling back to recap something that happened previously. I have no real sense of where this is all happening yet. Hold your nerve. Stay in the narrative present. The scene will have much more tension if you don't allow us to duck out of it. I'm not sure what barely believing in God means, by the way. It's an odd qualifier that dilutes the sentence. And I don't think you can capitalise God while also using the indefinite article. It makes it sound like she's praying to some random obscure deity like Chernobog, like she dialed the wrong number. I prayed to a god I barely believed in. I understand that the introduction of faith is probably very important here, what with the lumber and the mention of god and the hangings, I'm starting to imagine a sort of quasi-frontiersman fundamentalist society here. That's where the various clues take my mind, which may or may not be where you want it to go. And the tension between faith and doubt and uh, external shows of faith versus internal secret doubts. That might be really important, especially if someone's being hung for reasons we don't quite know yet. The narrator certainly doesn't sound like she's in to this whole hanging her mother business. I'm going to say here that I have doubts about the name Jim. It just, no offence to anyone called Jim, I like the name Jim in daily life but it doesn't really suggest anything here except a a lack of imagination with names i'm not saying you have to go all in on the whole caleb or isaac blinking neon sign this is a biblical fundamentalist society semiotic allegory business but jim just like it slides right off my brain i'm sure there are going to be great stories in the future written about people called jim but it's just not a very juicy name to get my teeth round The decisions I made in the days after I watched Ma die have stalked me ever since. The chronology of this sentence is breaking my brain even now, I think. So I think what we're supposed to understand from this sentence is I am speaking from the narrative future. The event is taking place now in the narrative present. And that's my mother's death. And this story is going to turn on the days that follow which I'm going to survive because I'm telling you. And I I get the positive impulse behind this sentence. The decisions I made in the days after I watched Ma die have stalked me ever since. You want to give us some foreshadowing, a kind of little did I know my life was about to change forever. Except we are not very far into the story yet. I don't think we're far enough. And there's five sentences in your first paragraph and one of them drags us into the narrative past and this other one leaps into the narrative future. That's not virtuoso or dynamic. It's just confusing. The fact you attempted it is really cool, though. And later on, this kind of nod towards the future could be very effective. It's a great impulse that you have as a writer. And, you know, it speaks very highly of your instincts. Um, But just here, it's too early. But I still heard the last words, the begging, the trapdoor thud and crunch as bone snapped. Then the stench of shit that followed. God's cruel joke. This is Powerful strident stuff. Clear, blunt, upsetting. Although, by law, you must cut God's cruel joke. That kind of cute addendum feels like you're reaching for significance or lyricism where none is needed. This is a scene where the narrator's watching her mum get executed. It's already punishingly real. You don't need to doodle over it with faux-important metaphors. They get in the way. You might as well add, she had soiled herself. Feces running down her twitching legs like so many childhood dreams. Although it does occurred to me that that 
description there. Um, I heard the still heard the last words, the begging, the trapdoor thud and crunch as the bone snap may not be happening in the narrative present, but it may be a summary of the previous uh, hanging that the narrator watched, in which case um, I think it's really ambiguous. And it's confusing. It sounds then that the mother's already died. And then we're told that Jim is kind of hiding in the skirts and we're not clear what's happened. Um, I got confused by that. Uh, And I don't think you need to jump back and forth like that. In fact, look, the mother's killing is such a powerful, upsetting opening image that I'm not sure why you take so long to get to it, why you build up to it. Don't be coy. You don't need to kind of like ease us in. This is your story. and, uh, And the reader can just fucking deal with it. Just open with the hanging happening on the first line. Imagine this opening. And by the way, this is just all your words, more or less, just rearranged. I heard Ma's last words. The begging. The trapdoor thud and crunch as bone snapped. Then the stench of shit that followed. Jim and I watched from the clifftop. Stacks of dark logs loomed out of the morning fog. Jim clutched at my skirts. A hungry fear dropped and hung in my stomach. That sounds great to me, right? That's a fucking good opening. And that's what you get when you spend a little bit of effort uh, editing your work. Is You just unlock fucking... That's, to me, That's if I read that as the opening of a novel, I'd be like, oh, holy shit, okay, I'm on board. And that's the content, the scene you've chosen to open your novel. It's really interesting. It's fantastic. You just need to kind of you know, pare it down and make it clear. And that applies to everyone who's listening. You could learn a lot from that. And that, my friends, is the shit that will help you solve the case. Okay, so that's today's episode, Bagged and Tagged. If you'd like to submit your work to Death of a Thousand Cuts, I'm looking for extracts of no more than 250 words that are the first page of your novel or short story. Please redraft and edit them. Imagine you were submitting to an agent, and some agents listen to the show, and so do some editors. So it's not a bad idea to do your best. So I can critique your work at its highest level. Once you've got your piece ready, go to my website, timclepo.co.uk and click the link in the right-hand column that says contact me. Drop the extractor's plain text into an email along with the title and your name. That's it. Jack, thank you so much for submitting today. I can't do the show without extracts to look over. So please, please send them in. A while back, I had a waiting list of over a year for critiques and I was doing them weekly, sometimes doing two a week. And it took me ages to work through it. At the moment, the turnaround is pretty quick so if you want one i would suggest you strike while the um iron is uh lukewarm i feature most stuff i get sent uh in the order i get sent it unless it's obviously plagiarized or grossly offends public decency today in tim news i'm waiting to hear back about the fate of my second novel it's a sequel to my first novel the honors by the time you hear this i'll probably know one way or the other whatever happens i'm going to keep on writing i love this craft i love you folks and we only get one life so this is what i'm choosing to do with mine the industry is what it is and as a white middle class male writing in english i probably get a much fairer shake than most authors so i'll just do my best to bear misfortunes philosophically and i'm working on a new novel already which i'm really excited about as frequent listeners will know so you know onwards and upwards but of course fingers crossed if you'd like to support my fledgling career as an author the best way to do that is to buy my novel the honors there's a link in the show notes or a link on my website you can click on that and get a copy sent straight to your door free postage i'd so 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 appreciate it if you would it's just it's what keeps a roof over my head and you'll get a smashing book to boot i've also got a donations page set up via the website coffee and that's co uh, ko 
dash fi again there's a link in the show notes and there's a button on my page so if you already got my book and you think oh i'd like to drop tim a few quid to get himself a, a piping hot beverage i'm not going to spend it on coffee i will spend it on hosting costs for the website and for putting up the podcast um there's just a tab on my website you can click through it, it's really quick um i've actually put up a link to online bookseller wordery <clears throat> on my website if you click through to that then um any books you buy well, after clicking that link will give me a little kickback too. Some of you have been doing that already with the affiliate links I've got set up. Thank you so much. It's like a thing where you just, just buy your books through. That way I, I've, I've switched from Amazon to Word, Wordery quite a while back and I, I found them really easy to use. They're generally cheaper. In fact, a lot of the books you click on in Amazon, it just links through to Wordery anyway. So you might as well buy it direct and not give Amazon a cut. And uh, I don't end up, uh, you know, after buying my books... I'm not left with this icky feeling like I've just whacked off in a phone box. Yeah. Phone boxes, eh? Remember them? There's a blast from the past. Can't rub one out in a Samsung Galaxy 8. Simpler times. Right, I should stop now. I'm, I'm talking about masturbation. Um, bye, and I hope your writing goes well this week. <laughs>